This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Joining me on today's podcast, I'm pleased to have David Reichmuth of the Union of Concerned Scientists as my guest. Uh, we're going to talk about the role of the now trendy plug-in hybrid vehicle in decarbonizing transportation. Uh, but first, we're going to review headlines from the mobility realm this past week. And for that, I'm happy to have my colleague Molly Boygan here. Molly, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Pete. Third week in a row. Very exciting. <laughs> That's right. That's trifecta. Can't get rid of me. I know I said that we're going to review headlines, but maybe I should uh, tweak that a little bit. Perhaps we can preview some headlines this week. Uh, you have been hard at work on a series of stories that that relates broadly to this overall effort to reduce carbon emissions. Maybe give us a sneak preview of what you're working on here. Yes, happy to. Um, so I was out West for CES, as you were, and um, after the bright lights and noise of Vegas, I went to the uh, small city of Winnemucca, which is between two and three hours north of Reno, and um, this is a part of the country that's grappling with big changes as Lithium Americas, which is a Canada-based lithium producer, is um, building a mine and processing site on the largest known lithium deposit in the world. So it's a, a huge mining and processing project. Um, the community is doing a lot to prepare and uh, there's been some discontent from residents and uh, some interesting things going on there. So spent a few days, went to the cash only movie theater, had the best piece of cornbread ever and uh, gathered some strength for for this series that I'm working on now. And I'm really excited for people to see it. Molly, do you get the sense when you said discontent uh, with local residents? Is it, are they excited about the jobs that are coming? Uh, worried about what, uh, you know, how delicate is the balance between welcoming this, uh, you know, forces gathering against it, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting mix. Um, a lot of the people I talked to were excited not only about the wages associated with the lithium mine, which are relatively high, but uh, Winnemucca and Humboldt County in northern Nevada is is generally an area where mining is a pretty prominent industry. So, you know, the hope for some people is that high wages will sort of trickle into other mines. And, you know, then you also have people who really like this very rural and just different way of life. You know, you're in the high desert, the mountains are all around, there's sagebrush. The weather was kind of crazy when I was there. You know, it's 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 sort of a wild place. And um, you know, other people are nervous about how the lithium mine and the people who are coming to work there, which will be around 2,000 people, about a quarter of um, Winnemucca's current population, will impact that. And I'm sure there are also a lot of people who are holding both of these things together, you know, excitement about progress and about um, the tax revenue and about job creation and also concerned about how all of this will impact their way of life. And when will we read your stories? Sometime in March. So hoping that um, folks can stay tuned and and 
you know, I was able to take some really interesting photos and videos. So all of that will be either, you know, in the paper or on our website, autonews.com. Excellent. Well, we look yeah. forward to uh, to reading it. Thanks. Yeah, I look I look forward to reading it too. <laughs> it's it's getting there. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it's been another week of very interesting mobility headlines. Um, you know, Shell closing its hydrogen stations. Pete, tell us what's going on with that. That's right. Uh, that's one that I wrote about this week. Um, Shell has closed seven of its eight light duty hydrogen fueling stations in California. Uh, the remaining one looks like it's probably going to be divested shortly. Uh, and it's there's only 59 or there were only 59 hydrogen fueling stations available to the public across the entire country prior to this announcement. So when you take seven or eight out, it's a big chunk. Uh, it's a setback for hydrogen, no doubt, uh, at a time when it's otherwise uh, seemingly rising as a potential option for, for transportation. Uh, and, you know, I asked David Reichmuth about hydrogen a little bit uh, in the role of fuel cells in transportation. I will not give away his answer, uh, but but perhaps that's a good lead in now. Thanks for being here, Molly. We'll be back with David right after this. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation, a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentech's full display mirror, an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices. All from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rear view mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rear view mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features have improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Welcome back. The backdrop for this week's topic of plug-in hybrids is, of course, that General Motors is bringing them back after a five-year hiatus. Let's dive in now with David Reichmuth. David, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Uh, let's dive right into the deep end a bit. Uh, within the past few days, you've published a really interesting piece with a headline of plug-in hybrids. Are they really a solution to reducing emissions? And my first question to you is, uh, is the answer yes, no, or it's complicated? <laughs> it's Well, of course, it's complicated. Uh, you, As you would have guessed, I mean, look, big picture, like switching from gasoline to electricity is absolutely required to limit climate change and reduce air pollution. When you look at global warming pollution uh, in the U.S., transportation is the largest sector. Passenger vehicles are the majority of transportation emissions. So it's 
it's just not possible to tackle climate change without addressing the emissions from the cars and trucks we drive. And so, you know, we have a solution at hand. It's to switch from gasoline to electricity. And plug-in hybrids, they sort of fall in between sort of your conventional gasoline vehicles, hybrids that don't plug in, and fully electric vehicles. You know, so some of the questions are sort of like, you know, where in that mix do they fall? Like, do they fall closer to the, the gasoline vehicles or, or to the electric vehicles? Long-term, we need to get rid of tailpipes altogether. So the, the end solution is fully electric vehicles. But in this, you know, where we are right now, there probably is a role for plug-in hybrids, but we do have to be careful about how much time they're spending on gasoline and how much time they're spending on electricity. I was just going to ask you, you know, what makes it a complicated question to answer here in like this this transition period as to whether or not they're they're helpful or somewhat helpful or give us an idea of what sort of factors uh, go into answering that question. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we look at the conventional gasoline vehicle, we know obviously 100% of the miles are coming from burning gasoline. And when we look at a fully electric vehicle like a Tesla, it, it's all coming from electricity. And when we've done the analysis, the average EV sold in the United States produces emissions equal to a gasoline car getting 88 miles per gallon. So they're, they're much cleaner. And even when you look at the manufacturing if we look at a comparable gasoline car compared to to an EV, it's it's less than half the total emissions. And so we know there's that benefit. And then we look at like where plug-in hybrids fall on that. So in, in theory, they're a great solution because you have a battery that can typically power the plug-in hybrid for 20 to say 50 miles on electricity, and then it'll switch to gasoline. And so, you know, you would be able to do potentially a lot of driving, especially if you're just driving around the city on electricity. Most people commute or drive 40 miles uh, a day or less. So that this seems simple, David, but you're about to, yeah. that's not so. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the, one of the complications is sort of like, are these vehicles getting plugged in? Because there's, you can't use a fully electric vehicle without plugging in at some point. Just like you can't use a gasoline vehicle without going to the gas station at some point. But, you know, when we look at sort of the the analysis of what you would assume, given average driving behaviors and the size of the range of the vehicles, you know, for some of these models, there's been analysis that say, okay, you would predict that two thirds of the miles would be on electricity if it was being plugged in every day and driven on a normal drive cycle. And in reality, for some models, we're seeing electricity make up only about like 35% of the miles. So there's a significant shortfall between, for some of these models, how much they're being driven on electricity and how much maybe they could be driven on electricity. One of the other things we're seeing is that some of the manufacturers are making really inefficient plug-in hybrids. Um, and there's some details around the, I think, around the, the emissions regulations that are driving that. But the number of the Jeep models have gone to a plug-in hybrid powertrain, they are significantly less efficient, even on electricity, than like a fully electric vehicle, even the fully electric pickup trucks. The Jeep Wrangler 4XE plug-in hybrid, it goes about a, a mile and a half on a kilowatt hour of electricity. A Tesla Model 3 can go four miles on that same amount of electricity. So it's about two and a half times less efficient than, than a, a Tesla. It's significantly less efficient even than like the Rivian R1S, a, a fully electric SUV seven-seater. 
And then when that Jeep switches in some form or fashion, because on a, on a full battery electric side, is there not all battery electrics are the paragons of efficiency either. And I think of a 7,000 pound Rivian as perhaps not the, not the most efficient use of, of battery resources in some way. So does that kind of fit into this, this complicated picture in, in a way? Yeah. I mean, for this Jeep Wrangler in particular, I mean, it's 68 kilowatt hours for every hundred miles on the, on electricity and the Rivian R1S, it goes as low as, as 43 kilowatt hours per hundred miles. So it's, it's quite a bit more efficient. Um, it depends on which Rivian quad motors, dual motors, it depends on that. But the other thing is when that Jeep switches to gasoline, it gets about 20 miles per gallon. So it's inefficient on the electricity side. It's inefficient on the gasoline side. If you put it all together, even in California, where we have fairly clean electricity, you're going to get like combined gasoline electricity. It's going to make emissions equal to a 28 mile per gallon gasoline SUV. If you look at something like the Ford F-150 Lightning on the California grid, it's equal to about 75 mile per gallon gasoline emissions. So that PHEV is a lot closer to a gasoline vehicle than an electric vehicle. That's not the case for every plug-in hybrid. It's just as a category, some of them do fall a lot closer to, to, to gasoline emissions than than electric. Obviously, David, this is in the news a lot these days because about two weeks ago, General Motors said that they were bringing back their plug-in hybrid technology. They haven't specified which vehicles will get it yet. So that's, you know, you just kind of laid out the law, you know, wide spectrum of, of possibilities as to how that would go. But but backing up from that a second, what do you see as driving industry, you know, you know, traditional major traditional automaker like GM to to re-examine, to reintroduce plug-in hybrid technology? Well, I think that you can't, I mean, plug-in hybrids, especially in the short term, you know, seem like they, they will have a role. And yeah, I think it would be great if GM offered the plug-in hybrid technology along with their battery electric technologies. Yeah, I don't think it has to be a binary choice. For GM in particular, I mean, they they spent a lot of time with that Voltec powertrain that went into the Chevy Volt. It had really good performance, uh, and there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to put that into a vehicle. They've said that you know the future is going to be electric, and they have a, a lot of models that are supposed to come out in the next couple of years that are fully electric. And so I, I think they can go forward with both powertrains. I mean, for GM, again, GM in particular, I mean, they're, they're having some issues around their next generation EVs and getting them out. And not all of those issues around powertrain, some of them around software. Is your concern that, generally speaking across the industry, plug-in hybrid sales will come at the expense of full battery electric and not not be replacing ICE? Yeah, I think that's the, you know, if if we have battery electrics that are replacing some of the, the gasoline vehicles and that if plug-in hybrids replace some of those ice you know those conventional gasoline only models that's great if we're shifting more of our driving to electricity faster that's a great thing but if it does come at the expense of the sort of the end solution of fully electric vehicles then that that'll probably slow the transition in the end David let me back up a second here for those <laughs> listeners who are not familiar what is the Union of Concerned Scientists and, and what do you do there? 
Yeah, so our organization's been around for about 50 years now. You know, we look to bring the voice of science into the policy arena and to make sure that we are making choices so that we have a healthy and sustainable world. Uh, and my, my role at Union of Concerned Scientists is to look at vehicle electrification. I do both work on analysis and policy around the transition from conventional vehicles to electric vehicles. We've been hearing a lot about the broad slowdown in EV sales uh, in your work. Have you looked at that? And would you say that, that there is a slowdown indeed going on? Well, I mean, I think that it's being confused between sort of like, what is the rate of change? How quickly are sales increasing versus our sales going up? And so Cox Automotive had fourth quarter sales in the U.S. at 8.1% of new car sales, which is a new high. So sales are still going up in the U.S. overall. California EV sales did slow in the fourth quarter, but we're still at 25% of new car sales in 2023. So we're still talking about, you know, even just compared to a few years ago, quite a few more EVs being sold. When we look at the sales, I think there's a few things to consider. One is that Tesla still has the majority of the EV market and really only has two models they sell in volume. So any increase or decrease in the demand for those particular models is going to have a large impact on the sales numbers right now. As the traditional automakers ramp up their offerings, you know that won't be the case. But right now, it's still they still have an outsized impact on the market, um, especially when you look at like monthly or quarterly data. That's going to be really noisy. If you step back and look at the big picture, it's clear that EV sales are are taking off in the U.S. We also have traditional automakers that are really kind of like pushing the narrative that that EV sales are weaker than expected. They have a clear interest in downplaying that demand. There's regulations being proposed by the EPA right now, and they are arguing for a weaker regulation, and it just helps to be able to say that EV demand is lower in the short term. There's a few other things to consider. One is that we, we right now, we're just in a place in the market where we have a lot of options right now in the five-seat crossover SUV at the 40 to 50K price point. A year ago, year and a half ago, there was everything was going for over MSRP. Now we sort of have a glut at that one particular type and, and price point, um, which probably isn't helping. And then there's also all the manufacturers, not, not all, but most manufacturers announced that they were going to the North American charging standard port, the port that's compatible with the Tesla superchargers, but said that those models will be coming out, a lot of them second half of 2024. There might be consumers that are like, hey, like if I wait six months, I have a car that it doesn't require an adapter to use Tesla's charging network. No, I think that's an interesting aspect of this because I, I wonder too, and are consumers waiting for NACS connectors in particular or or more broadly other types of technology or better batteries? You know, obviously the technology and products in the marketplace are are improving by the by the month. So I wonder, and I don't have a good answer, maybe you do, like, are people holding off just a little while longer to get to get some of those better products? It could be. And I mean, there's also sort of just, you know, you have some manufacturers like Honda doesn't have a battery electric vehicle on the market right now. If you're a person that is like, I'm like super interested in Honda, you're not buying right now. 
So there, there's some of that product mix. There's also, I mean, as interest rates have gone up, I think that has sort of caused maybe there might be people that are look, looking at what's going on there and seeing if they can delay. I think there's a lot of things that can happen in the short run. Again, like sort of stepping back big picture, we know that there's a lot of announced product for the next couple of years. And that we also know that outside of the US, that the market both sort of demand and regulation outside the US is going in the direction of, of electric vehicles. And so these are all global auto companies and there might be timing issues between the EU and China and, and the US, but it's clear that that's the direction things need to go. David, I'm curious, we've talked about plug-in hybrids first and foremost, but a little bit about internal combustion engine vehicles, conventional hybrids, full battery electric. Overall, I'm curious, do you think automakers have done a good job explaining these different options to consumers? Um, I think that some of them have actively done a poor job in explaining, uh, especially the, the, what a plug-in hybrid is. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of the automakers, I think have, you know, really muddied the waters. Uh, I was at the LA auto show last November and saw a display for the, um, all electrified 2025 Camry from Toyota. That all electrified Camry is a conventional hybrid. You can't plug it in. It only uses gasoline. So it's an all electrified, a hundred percent gasoline vehicle. I think most people that aren't experts in this area are going to see all electrified and think that that's an electric vehicle when it's not. And so that makes it really hard to explain what a plug-in hybrid is. Whereas I think at least on the, on the, on the fully battery electric, I think people get that obviously conventional gasoline vehicle, people get that it's just in that hybrid and plug-in hybrid range where there's been a lot of confusion and, and automakers calling those the non-plug-in vehicles fully electrified. You mentioned earlier that there's this kind of range of plug-in hybrids have the potential to be really good if people plug them in. <laughs> and I almost I almost hesitate to ask you, but uh, if you owned one, are, are there reasons why you would not be plugging it in? Yeah. I mean, well, one is that like if you bought it used and maybe you don't have a place to plug in. But for some of the manufacturers, they are selling these as hybrids. For the Chrysler Pacifica plug-in hybrid minivan, they were marketing that a lot for a good chunk of time as a hybrid, not as a plug-in hybrid. The plug-in hybrids do qualify for some of the federal incentives. So it might, in some cases, it can be cheaper for someone to buy the plug-in hybrid, even if they don't want to plug it in or can't plug it in. So it, it's funny, in the EU, this was a problem that there's a lot more corporate cars in the EU. And so employees were getting a plug-in hybrid with a gas card and, 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 and of course weren't plugging in because it made no sense if you got, had free gas and, uh, but had to pay for electricity. There is this also that like you are going to be more motivated to seek out charging in a fully electric vehicle, whereas in a plug-in hybrid, you know, if you go to a shopping mall or something and there's a place to plug in and it's convenient, sure. But if it's not, you can just let the charge run out. Yeah, you did mention earlier the secret sauce here is how many of these miles are are electrified versus on gasoline. And I'm curious, what is the state of research either from Union of Concerned Scientists or others on exactly you know what that breakdown is? How many miles truly 
do get converted into you know electric versus how many are in gasoline? Yeah, I mean the the data is imperfect. There's been some research at places like University of California at Davis on this this exact issue, but the automakers have the best data on that, but most of it's not on public. With the telematics, they 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 have a really good idea of what that that breakdown is. There has been some analysis done though that does show that the sort of the the curve used for the regulation sort of the relating the size of the battery pack or the range of the battery pack and the expected amount of electric miles overestimates how much miles go on electricity. So at least in the regulatory sense, we know that we're missing. Uh, we're overestimating the uh, benefits of, of plug-in hybrids. Along the lines of potential powertrains, I forgot to mention before uh, hydrogen fuel cells. And I'm curious what role, if any, uh, do you see for hydrogen fuel cells in the energy transition? Yeah, so so hydrogen has the potential to also enable fully electrified driving. You can make hydrogen from zero carbon sources. So there there is that potential. I mean, the issue right right now is that you know that does require the fueling infrastructure. It requires you to you know, if you want to have emission savings, it requires you to make the hydrogen from a zero carbon source. Um, a lot of the hydrogen right now is being produced from natural gas, which sort of limits the benefits of, of switching to to hydrogen. So there's probably some niche roles for, for hydrogen, but for the vast majority of, especially in the passenger vehicle space, the plug-in vehicles are going to be the easiest and cheapest and lowest emissions way to electrify. And if we bring this full circle, I think you said uh, near the outset that addressing the emissions from passenger vehicles is the biggest low-hanging fruit out there in terms of curbing overall transportation emissions. Yeah, it's 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 one of the largest sources of global warming emissions, the passenger cars that we drive. You know, it is something where we have solutions that exist that they're driving around on our roads today. And so, you know, there are, there are some sectors, you know, some places where we don't have perfect solutions yet, or it's going to be more difficult to decarbonize. But for passenger vehicles, we have the technology. We don't have to sort of, there's a lot of details about how we implement that technology and build the infrastructure and do all those things. But the, you know, it's, it's clear there's a working technology there. I'd be remiss if I also did not throw into this mix e-bikes. Uh, is that a clear-cut way to to lower emissions in transportation? Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, yeah, I have an e-bike myself. Uh, before the pandemic, that was my main mode of commute to, to my office. And the e yeah, an electric vehicle has significantly lower emissions than a gasoline vehicle. Avoiding driving altogether is even is even lower. Public transportation, e-bikes are ways to greatly reduce emissions, and they're also a good deal cheaper than buying a new vehicle, whether it's EV or gasoline. And so not everyone's going to be able to make every trip on, on a bike or by walking or by bus, but even just switching some of those trips away from vehicles will reduce emissions and especially in cases where people have like two or three cars in their household. If you, instead of replacing that third car with another car, can you replace enough of those trips with walking, biking, or, or transit? 
I'm curious, uh, tell me more about your commute on the e-bike. Uh, how far was it? What was the infrastructure like? And and beyond the you know carbon reduction aspect, did, did you ultimately feel safe doing it? Yeah, so it was about a 10-mile round-trip commute to my office in downtown Oakland. And it's, you know, I, I would love better bike infrastructure. Uh, I think that's the case in, in a lot of cities. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel safe biking, even in a city. And, you know, I think there is, with the electric bike, it does make it easier to navigate the hills and, and take a direct route or avoid major thoroughfares. Um, because I can go up and over a hill without it being that big a deal. It's still a little bit of exercise. It probably takes it from the equivalent of jogging to the equivalent of walking, which is you know great when you're talking about just getting back and forth to work. Prior to working at the Union of Concerned Scientists, you spent uh, about a decade at uh, Sandia National Laboratory. Uh, I'm curious what you did there and how you got on that career path. Yeah, so um, I was at... Sandy National Laboratories in Livermore, California. Um, part of my time there, I spent looking at energy systems and, and questions like how much hydrogen would be, can be produced in the U.S. or what's the capacity for biofuels production, questions like that. I, I really enjoyed that work. I really enjoyed the people at Sandia National Labs. Uh, one thing I really love, though, about my current job at the Union Concerned Scientists is that I both get to do some of the analysis work that I was doing at the labs, but then also the sort of policy and advocacy side and trying to both come up with the technical answers, but then also try to, to put those those answers into practice. Because the national labs, you can you can do a lot of analysis, but you kind of have to put it out there and hope that people will make the connections and, and make the policies that reflect that analysis, which can happen, but is often policymakers need a little bit of of, a more direct push. David, final question for you here. Uh, You know, we've been talking a lot about plug-in hybrid vehicles. Uh, So to kind of end this on that note, what kind of customers uh, ultimately might be interested in buying a plug-in hybrid vehicle versus some of the other options we've discussed? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple cases where people would be interested in a plug-in hybrid vehicle. One is where it's just sort of, you know, maybe somebody's a little bit concerned about making that switch to a fully electric vehicle. Um, and so this would allow somebody to sort of experience driving on electricity, like where to plug in, to realize that they, you know, it's a, a lot easier to, to plug in at home than, than go to a gasoline station. And then, you know, that might help them look at, okay, well, maybe I could do this with, with a fully electric vehicle. So I think that's potentially a role to sort of like, not just on the technology side as a transition, but also just sort of helping people get used to that sort of change in behavior. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate the time. Great having a conversation with you. Likewise. All right. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank David for making the time to be here and provide this breakdown on if, how plug-in hybrids fit into the emissions reductions picture. If you like this episode of Shift and or you like the podcast overall, please leave us a review or subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.